Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, March 9th. Did you see the article in The New Yorker recently about the United States and China? It carried the headline, Sliding Toward a New Cold War. Use the term Cold War. It says, Not since the Berlin Wall fell has the world been cleaved so deeply. So are we really sliding toward a new Cold War? If so, whose fault is it? Only China's or also ours? Are there perverse political incentives to escalate rather than de-escalate right now? Remember the Iraq war based on assumptions of a credible threat? Oops, that started 20 years ago this month. How short are our memories? In just the past few days, we've seen from China's side a speech by China's president, Xi Jinping, on Tuesday being described as rare direct criticism of the United States. Quote, Western countries led by the United States, he said, have implemented all-around containment, encirclement, and suppression of China, which has brought unprecedented severe challenges to our country's development. And he gave another speech yesterday calling for China to more quickly elevate its armed forces to world-class standards. From the U.S. side, there's a growing bipartisan hawkishness. A New Yorker article, the one I cited, mentioned Kirsten Gillibrand in an interview with our reporter Bridget Bergen saying Xi Jinping is bent on a world war, never mind Cold War, bent on a world war. And on this show on Monday, Gillibrand stood by invoking a potential world war. Listen. China has spent enormous amount of resources doubling their military defense spending, um, really trying to create state-of-the-art offensive weapons in both air, land, and sea, and space. Um, And so the constellation of what China's putting forward as a projection of power is very worrisome to me personally. That's Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat. Republican Nikki Haley, in her first presidential campaign appearance last month, said communist China will wind up on the ash heap of history, which sounds like a threat of regime change, coming from a U.S. presidential hopeful. And a new U.S. intelligence report released just yesterday said uh, it was also the subject of congressional hearings yesterday, maybe you've heard some of the sound bites, uh, featured a significantly expanded section on the intelligence community's concerns over China. And we should say it's not even just the U.S. from the Western side. The Guardian ran a U.K.-based opinion column a couple of weeks ago, headline, Liz Truss's delusional speech about China is digging the trenches of a second Cold War. Does she really think Xi's threats to Taiwan will be stopped by the saber-rattling of the failed prime minister of a former colonial power? (laughs) So that was from The Guardian. So what's going on here? And can a new Cold War, and to listen to Haley and Xi Jinping and Gillibrand, maybe even a new World War, be avoided? Joining me now to discuss is Susan Shirk, research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. 
and author of a brand new book, or a, a book that's um, out, I think, a couple of years now called Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. And very relevantly, Professor Shirk served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs during the Clinton administration, and also had an older book uh, from 2007 called China Fragile Superpower. Uh, The new book, Overreach, was just published last October uh, to get that part straight. Professor Shirk, thank you very much for getting up early on the West Coast and joining us on WNYC today. Hi there. Well, thanks so much, Brian, for inviting me. Professor Shirk, do you think Xi Jinping is bent on a new world war? Uh, No, I certainly don't think he is. But we uh, are in the middle of what I would call a Cold War, even though it's very different than the Cold War that we had with the Soviet Union, because China is, of course, one of our leading trade partners. Uh, We, our economies and our societies are much more integrated than uh, we had with the Soviet Union. But uh, beginning, actually not with Xi Jinping, but even earlier, under the previous leader, Hu Jintao, uh, China, after exercising a lot of self-restraint and good diplomacy in order to reassure other countries that it wasn't a threat, even as it grew more powerful economically and militarily, and had a very different political system, it really changed in the mid-2000s. And under Xi Jinping, it has started overreaching even more in the sense that, of course, overreach means to take things too far in a way that snaps back to harm yourself. So uh, there are many people in China who are not uh, supportive of the kind of aggressive foreign policy and repressive domestic policy of Xi Jinping. Uh, So we might want to consider that as well. Uh, What's an example of how this overreach, and again, I'll tell people your book title, the new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. What's an example of it coming back to hurt the Chinese people which you just referred to as as a result of the overreach? Well, um, let's just talk about foreign policy, beginning with um, a more assertive stance in the South China Sea in the mid-2000s, but now a lot of pressure from Coast Guard, uh, marine surveillance and fishing vessels and drilling, uh, energy drilling, against Japan in the East China Sea, uh, against Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, the coercive sanctions against Australia when Australia called for an international scientific study of the origins of COVID, China stopped uh, purchasing Australian products except for iron ore. So uh, they did similar sanctions against South Korea, uh, even Norway, uh, because of the Nobel Prize, which isn't even connected to the Norwegian government, uh, when the Nobel Prize was awarded to Leo Xiaobo, 
a democracy activist in China. So, um, and this kind of action has led to an international backlash in which we see not just the United States, but Japan, Korea, the European countries uh, who are very concerned about China's pro-Russian stance in the Ukraine war. Um, these actions are leading to a, a whole bunch of international coalitions designed to balance against an increasingly threatening China. So um, this and even the most uh, bullish foreign investors are now taking political risk in China a lot more seriously. Hmm. And so foreign investment uh, is uh, being very cautious and stagnating or declining in China, too. And the economy in China is growing much more slowly than it had previously. There are secular uh, structural reasons for that having to do with demographics and other factors. But a lot of it was caused by Xi Jinping's crackdown on private business in China. And private business generates the most employment possibilities in the Chinese economy. So, uh, you know, there are really quite a few people in the Chinese elite whom I've spoken with who are very concerned that Xi Jinping is taking China down a path which is going to uh, be very damaging to Chinese economy and society. So is Xi Jinping like Putin? I think that I've tended, a lot of people have tended to see him as a more complex character than Putin mm -hmm. because China has had this remarkable economic growth for decades now, and they've been you know, they may have violated people's human rights to a large degree. They may be committing genocide, as the U.S. has labeled it, against the Uyghurs. But they've also acted in the interest of uh, hundreds of millions of mm -hmm. Chinese, maybe a billion or more Chinese economically, to have all this growth and grow a middle class out of, um, out of the poverty of 50 years ago. Um, but I'm looking at the review of your book, and uh, from um, the, uh, let's see, I think this is in Foreign Affairs, and it says the governing class enthusiastically backed Xi Jinping, concluding that democracy, even if only at the local level, would eventually be a threat to their power and privileges. And there's long been a stream of Chinese thinking that envisions the country's destiny as being the preeminent global power. So if we think of Putin as just caring about Russian power, and we think of China as much more complicated than that, mm -hmm. is Xi Jinping more like Putin than we might have thought in the past? No, you're, you're absolutely right to identify these differences between China and Russia and Xi Jinping and Putin. Uh, and Xi Jinping didn't steal power he got a mandate from the Chinese elite in 2012 because collective leadership, which they had tried during the previous decade, had not worked very well. 
and led to massive corruption. But then Xi Jinping launched this anti-corruption campaign in 2013, which also was a purge of potential uh, real or imagined rivals to Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping. And it continues to this very day, uh, and including very senior leaders. So that put tremendous pressure on all the officials in the system to uh, show their loyalty to Xi Jinping by jumping on the bandwagon of his policies and over-complying, you might say, overdoing the way they carried out his policies. So that's the dynamic under Xi, which is leading to these uh, more extreme and less restrained uh, social control domestically, as well as uh, more aggressive policy internationally. So it is more complicated. And one of the shocking things to many of us and many people in China is that, as you say, we used to see China's leaders as very pragmatic, that they would adjust their policies in order to keep the Chinese economic growth coming along, because that's how they kept popular support for Communist Party rule. But what is kind of shocking about the current leadership is that it is so much less pragmatic and also less competent. Look at zero COVID. Three years of this extreme zero COVID policy with lockdowns, constant testing, huge amounts of money going to test the population regularly, but not enough vaccinations to prepare for the eventual transition out of zero COVID. And then when there were protests in China, because after three years, people were really fed up uh, with the lockdowns, they suddenly just almost overnight dropped the zero COVID policy People were left on their own resources. The government hadn't vaccinated the older population and large numbers of people died. So right now in China, there is, uh, I believe, quite a lot of dissatisfaction with Xi's rule. And I think some of this more aggressive stance toward the United States is designed to divert attention uh, to a foreign threat and distract people from domestic complaints. In the Intelligence Committee hearing this week, Senator Angus King raised the issue of the U.S. economic dependency on China, as I think he framed it, Senator King, independent from Maine, and, and how... Um, that's intentional on the part of China. So we're going to play a one-minute exchange between Senator King and Avril Haines, who is President Biden's Director of National Intelligence. China now is on track to control 65% of lithium-ion battery market, 40% of the world's active pharmaceutical 
uh, ingredients, and uh, their global share across all manufacturing of solar panels is 80% now, go to certainly go to 90%. This is an important information for us in terms of informing us about the dangerous dependency that we've developed in a whole lot of areas. Uh, and semiconductors is one that we've, we've talked about, but uh, it, it suggests to me that this issue of dependency is something that really has to have some serious policy examination. Would you concur? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that, that we're really trying to expose here is the fact that it's not just simply about China trying to create indigenous supply chains, but actually to control global supply chains. That seems to be a deliberate policy, does it not? Exactly. And a related concern, Professor Shirk, is China getting into the U.S. backyard now economically with their so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which we might think of as being more directed toward places in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere in Asia. From what I read, they're investing heavily in South America and the Caribbean, having recently completed what's called the largest embassy in the world in the Bahamas. And 80% of Mexico's telecommunications infrastructure is provided by Chinese companies, I read. So talk about that whole economic competition slash interdependency. Well... International relations experts, and I'm not one, I uh, I focus on comparative politics, but sure. they generally think of uh, inter economic interdependence as motivating the trading partners to behave in a more restrained way toward one another because they share an interest in sustaining the trade and investment and flows of human capital. And that was definitely the story of US-China relations in the past. Uh, once we started viewing China as more of a threat due to China's own behavior, we started worrying that our dependence on China is um, is risky. And we started also putting restrictions on our flows, economic and technology flows to China, because we wanted to uh, slow down China's progress, really. And we uh, saw much of this technology going into improving China's military capability. So the way it's sometimes put is that both sides are weaponizing yeah. this economic interdependence. So how do we get back to a point where we, well, I think for one thing, what we need to do is we need to look hard at the data of where collaboration has really benefited us and benefited people all over the world. You know, the IMF is now saying uh, that the decoupling of China and the United States will lead to at least a 7% uh, um, reduction in global growth, in global GDP. That's really, really significant. Uh, 
interesting times in the United States and all the way on the other side of the world. We thank Susan Shirk, former Clinton administration State Department official, research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego now and author of the new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Well, I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for asking me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.